ride with me in my foul life. Foul Life Podcast coming your way once again. We're so happy with the growth of the podcast. Y'all have been awesome with all the subscribers, all of the ratings, all of the reviews. Hopefully, hopefully y'all are happy with our themes, our topics, our diversity and guests. Today's episode of the Foul Life Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Gerber Gear, Gerber Knives. You've heard me say it a million times. We don't leave home without them. Our trucks, our boats, our blind bags, our toolboxes, everywhere we go, we have a Gerber product with us, whether it's a saw, fillet knife, an open blade knife a folding knife. We are doing everything from building blinds to fixing boats, to fixing gear, to cutting breast meat off of mallard ducks, getting ready for those awesome recipes on our Traeger. So when you want to rely on that provider mentality to make sure that you live the life, life, life cycle 360 degrees all year round, depend on Gerber to be there for you. They are there for us constantly. And today's episode of the Foul Life Podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Mountain Ops. Our guest today is actually wearing a Mountain Ops hoodie. Jordan Hart Harvardson, the entire family up in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thank you for everything you do for us, for keeping us healthy, keeping us fit, keeping our minds right on that workout, staying in shape. Everybody thinks duck hunters don't need to be in shape, but trust me, you do. If you want to take this lifestyle into your 60s, your 70s, your 80s, let's all get started now, living right, making better versions of ourselves, and that's exactly what the Mountain Ops mentality is. So support the partners and sponsors that support us. I promised you guys part two with today's guest. We started our initial podcast in Nashville at the National Wild Turkey Federation Convention. Got cut a little short with a lot of added volume of duck calls and just a, a busy day going on in the Opryland Convention Center. But Kelly Powers from Final Flight Outfitters is back with us. You already heard me say the pioneer ways of this man, the trailblazing of the short read goose call, his competition calling career, what he's done in this industry. He has an unbelievable reputation. Kelly Powers, welcome back. Man, I'm glad to be here, Chad. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. You're uh, you're sitting in a room that I can see two things besides your good looking, handsome face. I see whitetail deer or coos deer. I don't know the difference. I think whitetail are bigger. So those I'm going to say the one that's right over your right shoulder that would be my far left. I'm going to get him at uh, 151. The one in the middle, I'm going to go at 144. And the one on the far right, I'm going to go at one. God, 47. He looks like he's got good height, but he's a little bit blurred out. The fans of the turkeys, I can judge those beard lengths and ages, but am I close on any of those scores? Or do you even score well, them? All right. So, so yeah. So let me, so this one right here where my finger's at was, let's see, is one, uh, hold on, is 142. Wow. I said the 144. One was, that's it. This one here, you said one, this was 144 and six eights. Wow. So you, you nailed that. You said 148 on that one. That was actually 162. But to be to be fair, you can't really see his right side. No, I said um, one. I said 150 something on that. We're gonna have to rewind the tape. I think maybe I didn't. Maybe one, I, didn't. I think 158. Yeah, yeah 158. Yeah. So I was a but little he, closer. Yeah, yeah, that was one 162. No, and, he's a stud. He, I could tell he's a stud deer. He's a he's a true 10 point. Or is he a true 10? He is. He's a mainframe 10, and he's got some kickers and a, a good bit of mass. Yeah, he's but, a stud uh, deer. Yeah, I, yeah, he's, you know, and, and these are these are Tennessee deer, so I'm not, I'm not, not traveling. I mean, these, matter of fact, three of, uh, well, there's some more on the wall down here, but uh, three of them come off, for the most part, the same trail. So, uh, so I, I pretty much all within just a couple miles of my house. I love it. Are you uh, are you putting any turkeys on the ground yet? Are you calling them in for your kids? What's the status yeah. on the turkey? I know this quarantine. You, know, you don't leave, you don't leave much anyway, but this quarantine snuffed up a bunch of turkey hunts. Yeah, and I mean, I I'm hunting. For, I mean, I can leave my house a lot of places on a four wheeler, or you know, I mean, uh, so I, I can. I'm hunting just close to the house for the most part. But man, we've had a good season so far. I I guess. I didn't hunt today or, or yesterday with high winds and a lot of rain and storms that come through. And, but in our first goodness, seven days, I think I've seen seven turkeys die. So now granted I've, I've shot three myself, but my, my son shot one and one of my best friend's daughters, I watched her shoot one on a blind right down from us. And, and, uh, my nephew, me and him doubled up and, and just has been fun. And this is literally on the family farm, right out your back door on a four wheeler. Not you don't probably don't have to open a gate or ask anybody for permission or even hit pavement at all, do you? For the most part, no. I mean, you know, I can I can go just close to my house. I mean, and now granted, there are some you know I, I get on the road and and go, but it's not 
you know, five miles, six miles, 10 miles. And uh, one of my closest friends that I've I hunt with um, every opening weekend since the last really 25 years. Uh, he's got a big farm and it's about 20 something miles, but it's about a 1200 acre cypress swamp. That's just pristine cypress. It's absolutely beautiful. And we've hunted there opening weekend for, I guess, going on 20 something years now. And it's tradition, but I watched him shoot one opening day. And uh, last year I killed one opening day at that farm and my son was sitting in my lap. So my son's now nine. Of course, he was eight last year, and and uh, he killed his first turkey when he was seven, and he killed a long beard here about four or five days ago. So it it uh, and funny story, uh, just let's say not yesterday, the day before, we were walking out, and we we didn't have that good of a hunt, and we were walking out, and I got a bird fired up, and we had decoys, and I just threw all the decoys in the ditch, and I said, Kip, to go sit down by the closest tree, and as soon as we sat down, of course, he's I mean he's nine, so he can. Really can't even hold the gun up, you know, on his own yet. But he rests the gun on his knee, does everything just like, you know, he's supposed to. And and I looked over at him. I said, Kipton, you're big boy turkey hunt now. This is no blind or nothing. This is running gun style. And that bird centered us up perfect, come right down the end of his gun barrel. And I was wondering, he said, can I shoot? I said, yeah, shoot him, shoot him. Well, he took forever to shoot. I was like, what's going on? Well, finally, the bird started getting nervous. And Kipton looks at me and says, Dad, my gun, my safety. Well, he's at the age that I've never even taught him on the set to how to take the safety off yet. Cause that's my job. You know, I reach over when everything's safe and I click the safety off and say, all right, your, your safety. And I tell him, but as that bird was coming in, he said, dad, is my safety off? Well, it happened so fast. I thought he was asking, is my safety off? And I was like, yeah. And I just assumed that he's clicked his off and he's ready and unsafe. Make a long story short, that bird was starting to get out of there. And, and Kippen said, yeah, go ahead. And I shot him because Kippen didn't have a shot. And, uh, but I felt awful for that. But I told Kip after it was over, I said, let me tell you something. You killed that bird. I said, you did everything right. Other than that gun going bang, you know, uh, how old, right how old is he? His gun barrel. He is, uh, he's nine years old. Wow. That is so cool, man. So what, yeah. And it's, it's that, I mean, in that bird, you couldn't have come right in as close as it could be right at the end of his lap for the most part. And he was trying for, for Kip, he's trying to pull the trigger. And of course the gun wouldn't go off. Oh, and, uh, how frustrating. It, yeah, it, it was fun. And after it was over, he was upset a little bit. He said, you know, he kind of didn't want to let me down. I said, no, 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 let's have a talk here, buddy. I said, you didn't let me down at all. I said, you did everything that was right. I said, I'm the one that it just happened so fast. I said, I just, I didn't understand what you were asking and I was assuming and anyway. But we, we've shared a lot of good memories here this this week of season. And uh, so far, it's been, been a really good time. And I just, I just love the idea of that kind of lifestyle. Like I'm all just not envious or jealous, but just like, just what a, what a, what, what a cool way to live, you know, to have your kid there, be able to go out your back door, have that network around that your family's built through farming and wildlife and hunting and fishing over the years and several generations, just a cool story. And last, when we were talking before Kelly powers, we were, we were touching on right at the end of our conversation, we were touching on your thoughts of goose callers. And you were kind of going down this rabbit hole of, if you look at, the Fred Zinks or the Harold Knights and the business owners, the entrepreneurs that took their calling passion, their hunting passion and expertise, if you will, and kind of turned it into more of a livelihood, a revenue stream. And you were kind of going, you were saying things. I, if I, if I heard you right, like, man, goose callers are just different. I want you to continue on that path of, of the Harold Knights, the Fred Zinks, yourself, Banded, you mentioned, and what we've done with that, the companies that have come out of that goose calling competition, goose calling network. And then I want you to just naturally flow into your thoughts on where, where are the contests? Where did they go? What happened significantly? Because you started to say things like kids just aren't taking part calls apart today and dissecting them like you and I did, or really you did. And then I did later in life, but talk to me a little bit about your feelings on the entrepreneur part of the business and how goose hunter goose callers took their passion to the next level. And then where did these contests go? Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, I, I've said it, I, you know, I've been honored as, as yourself, you know, hosted the world goose, uh, contest there for the last several years and and you hosted last year and I've said it in the past I said you know if you look at just previous winners of that contest we, we're not going to talk about competitors but just you know just the winners and and it's a who's who's list of guys that have gone on in the industry and been very successful and even crossovers uh, not just in goose calling or goose hunting uh, you know and and their names that 
Harold Knight, you know, Harold Knight won the world goose, I believe in 85 or 80, I think it was 85, 86. Um, and, and, you know, and to see night and hell get started, what they did. And of course, these are, these are two gentlemen from Katie's Kentucky that were huge waterfowl hunters, but they were probably more known as turkey hunters than they were waterfowl. Yet one of the first accolades they got was, was in the waterfowl world, you know, um, and it just goes to show their competitive spirit, entrepreneurial spirit, and they're just very bright hunters and, and, uh, uh, just had a different mindset on studying, uh, calling techniques, hunting techniques, uh, stuff like that. Um, and you go on down the list, you know, and, and there's tons of people since then, uh, you know, Fred Zink and, and you can go Sean Mann and, and there's different people that have just have done things that where they are now and not only where they are now, but the companies they started, uh, the concepts that they created. And, it, and it's just like a, an oak tree and all the branches and all that. It's, it just networks from there. And, it's, it's really interesting. And, and, you know, it, even with zinc and the companies that, that he helped start and the products that he helped design and the, the hunting concepts that he helped innovate, um, not necessarily things that he created and he would even tell you, but there are things that he might've modified and made better or different things. And, um, and it's, it's really a lot of the roots go back to competitive goose calling. Um, it's kind of where you can see where those guys got the start. Um, and it, I don't know. It's just it's just interesting to say. And I, I don't uh, competition is is a good thing. And and granted, you know, you know, I work for Higdon Decoys as a competitor with what you know Fred started with Avian X. But at the end of the day, I think we'll, we're both very close friends. And I, he's been good as go to me. And and uh, and I thank the world of him and his family. But if you look at that competitive spirit, I think he would agree. The competitive spirit we have on stage you know, it also is, is it translate over to business. And in the end, we, we make better products for the hunters. And I think we all win. And that's where our passion is, you know, yeah, it's, you want to be successful, but then again, I want to make a product that actually can make me more successful out hunting. And, you know, and, and I feel like we've done a pretty good job with that with Higdon and, and then, and final flight, what we sell. And I know Freddie's done a good job with that with Avian X and Zinc calls and, and there's a ton of other companies out there. I just, I'm kind of singling him out just because we started there, but there's a lot of companies out there that, that, uh, that have a lot of success on that. And, and the, the route started with competition calling. Yeah. And it's, you may mention before to me about how, you know, how Knight went from the waterfowl obsession and then becoming more known per, per se for Turkey and probably even whitetail than his waterfowl. Um, and then Freddie came into, you know, the waterfowl, zinc calls was all duck calls, all goose calls. And then you mentioned last time about, you know, the Avian X uh, turkey line and the calls and how he surrounded himself with the, and, and, and Freddie's self-admittingly really not a big time turkey hunter. He enjoys it, but he no. brought it, he brought in the right people to take that, that part of the brand to the next level. Yeah. And, and one of the, one of the best things that I've kind of learned along the ways is, is, and part of it was from people like Fred and, and the other business guys that I've been around my whole life is if you surround yourself with successful people in their, in their lane. And I always tell people stay in your lane and own your lane, you know, but if you surround yourself with people that are highly successful, uh, you're going to rub off on them and be successful yourself. And, and, and that's what we try to do with our business, with Final Flight, our stores, what we try to do with Higdon, what we try to do with Power Calls and the, and the companies that I'm affiliated with. Areas that I'm deficient in and that I lack, I try to bring people on that are, that's where their specialty is. And, and if you analyze your staff, uh, if you put them in areas where they can succeed and, and give them space to let them grow, uh, man, you, you're going to do great things, you know, and, and, and I tell our, I tell guys that I work with and, and, and Brooke and Kyle with power calls. And of course, Kyle, you know, um, Kyle, one of the world goose the last two years, I tell him, I said, listen, there are things that, that I might do that I'm horrible at. You don't want necessarily want me in sales. You don't want me at shows necessarily talking to people. Cause I, I physically get tired. I get burnt out, you know, and it's not down my wheelhouse. It's not in my lane of what I can do best, but you can take someone like Brooke and Kyle and put the, put them in those areas and they love it. I mean, they're absolutely, they kill it. They're awesome in the public. They're, they're great on, on camera. Uh, and there's different things. So I try to put people, um, you know, just, it's just common sense and put them in areas that they can succeed, give them room. Um, and, and they're going to be great. And, Part of the part of the discussion, um, you know, as far as how meaningful competition was and met, and what it meant for your career, you you even said that, you know, 
your resume padded with that world goose championship and that champion of champions, that was good for you to take that into an under armor or, or a potential employer or, you know, whatever it was that Kelly powers was going to go into. So back in that reign from, I'm going to say 97, 98, 99, maybe a tad bit earlier and probably into like, I'm going to say right up 2007, eight, maybe, but the worldwide and in, in 2005 in Fort Collins, Colorado was one of the last bigger ones. Is it safe to say that the main reason contest calling is gone it's two-sided one all these kids and all of these up-and-comers have a ton of access to content on the internet which i would think would drive more of a passion to succeed in competition calling because they can go find your routines and hunters and kyle's and trinans and it, you name it they're out there the other part of it kelly and tell me if i'm wrong is I think that retail has a lot to do with the fall off of the amount of contests and opportunity out there, meaning that the retailers were pushing a lot of these regional contests through Cabela's or Bass Pro or Sportsman's Warehouse. Um, and then you did have the U.S. Opens and in the, the Winchester and some of those that were held in neutral areas. But still, even in those cases, retail's partners were big time for that as far as sponsorship dollars well now with internet shopping and online you know the ways that people are getting their product through amazon or your catalog and your online service do you think those are the two main factors is the internet ability to you know get kids the content they need they really don't physically need to go to a contest anymore or what what happened to that burning desire to compete you know there's a lot to that i mean used to people, the, the biggest contest were held at retailers. Um, and I think, and, and, and granted, we're a retailer ourselves. but when you look at it, it's very hard for a retailer to turn a contest or a calling contest into a profitable weekend. Uh, and, and a lot of that is just a disconnect of, of uh, the way calling is, is evolved a little bit. Goose calling, I, I still feel like for the most part, uh, and I may take some flight from this, goose calling for the most part is still a realistic scenario where just about every note that a guy would do in a goose calling routine, he's going to do out in the field, you know, and everything that he's learning to do on a competition goose call, uh, in a routine is not necessarily wasted. Uh, meaning, you know, if I'm in a contest today and I'm goose hunting tomorrow out in the field, you know, I'm not necessarily going to do all of those notes, but I've got them in my arsenal if I need to. Whereas when you get into the main street duck and stuff, you know, it's just unrealistic, you know, the 40 note high balls and all that. And, and, and a lot of guys say, well, it's good for the sport, this and that. But I look at it and say, you know, there, there is an angle there. And I like, I understand that. But if there's people that have never been in the sport and they hear it and they say, man, a duck doesn't sound like that. Is that really good for the sport? And I think that's why we're really seeing the popularity of meat calling contests, live duck calling contests is because you're so-and-so guy that's just a duck hunter in his local community He's going to go to final flight that afternoon because he's going to hear good duck calling of a guy that he wants to hunt beside in the, in the, in the field. And, and don't get me wrong. The guys that are, that are in, that are entrenched in main street calling uh, are unbelievably talented. I'm not, I'm not even saying that because they can, they can run a, a duck call in a field just as great, but it's the perception that they're having to fight. that I don't, I don't necessarily think is fair uh, that they have to fight that, you know, but it is what it is. And I think that's why we're seeing a little more popularity of live duck, main street duck to me, if I was going to have, and this is coming from a retailer, a contest promoter, hoster, if I'm going to have a contest and I could do a main street duck versus a live duck or meat duck, I want the live duck or meat duck. It's going to draw more callers and it's going to draw more people to watch it. Uh, and at the end of, end of the day, I'm, my, my revenue and my store sales are going to be up because there's going to be more people there for the event. So I think you're fighting a little bit of that, you know, and I think I think there is I'm not saying do away with any of the other. I think there's just a common balance there that uh, at contest callers, we have to take the blinders off sometimes and realize the future of our sport. Um, we have to evolve a little bit with this. So it's continuing to get more people in, in, into the industry. So you think that that goose calling is still as popular as it was at one time as far as the competition part of it goes? Because most goose calling competitions are, like you said, more of a meat style when without the 40-note high balls and the, the, the double-cut feed chatter. And, you know, like a competition street contest and duck calling is every caller has to adhere to that same exact routine yeah. pretty much. Yeah, goose calling, uh, goose calling is a factor – of being piggybacked with a lot of your duck calling contests, you know, they would have on the same weekend. But a biggest thing in goose calling from, in my opinion too, is, you know, the, our migrations changing, 
you know, there was a lot of your bigger goose calling contests. I mean, Southern Illinois was the mecca at one time of Canada goose hunting. And now you, there's, I mean, it's all duck hunting. You know, it's, it's, it's struggling from a hunting scenario, and that's a completely different issue. But when you don't have goose hunting there, uh, you know, the, your, your contests are going to go with it. So now your areas of Chicago, North, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, Rochester, Minnesota, those are kind of your hotbed areas for goose calling contest and it's just it hasn't translated over to more contests popping up but that's where your your biggest goose hunting is right now as far as in the mississippi flyway yeah it's a good point i didn't think of it that way where the the contest could follow the hotbeds where the u.s open or the winchester and marion illinois and in johnson city and crab orchard you know that was the hotbed for so many years you talking about goose hunting we've mentioned it on our last podcast that you come from from a state that you can kill some canada geese in the state of tennessee but it is nowhere near known for a canada goose state i don't know if it ever has it could have been back in the day because i know places like the boot hill of southeast missouri used to hold a lot more canada geese than they do now but you didn't grow up setting up decoy spreads and getting in a ground blind as opposed to being in the woods or being in a box blind on an oxbow or a river hunting mallard ducks you started to really travel is it safe to say during the rnt days when you started to go to canada and get get set to set the large spreads of canada goose decoys well no i mean it goes way before that Uh, i mean i grew up you know real foot lake used to and i'm i'm 20 miles, 25 minutes from Realfoot Lake, about 20 miles, I guess, as a crow flies. But growing up, Realfoot, we would winter, you know, over 100,000 to 200,000 Canada geese every year. And we would, you know, and sometimes it would go up even to three. I mean, it was, it was fairly substantial. And of course, Crab Orchard in Southern Illinois, I mean, I'm only around 60 to 70 miles as a crow flies from you know, Union County Refuge in Southern Illinois and, and those areas. So, um, we had a lot of Canada geese. Now, granted, Tennessee wasn't necessarily as known for, for Canada goose hunting, but the farther east you go, you've got Fuller's Hill um, in New Johnsonville, Tennessee. And, you know, there's that's where Harold Knight and David Hale, they had their pit there, and they filmed tons of videos with Knight and Hale was there on, on goose hunting videos. So I grew up around that and kind of in that atmosphere. And, I mean, when I was a little kid, I remember my dad gave me a little red goose call and and I remember, goodness, I was probably seven or eight years old or even younger going back behind my house and calling at the geese flying over the house, you know, especially on those fall migration days that unfortunately we just we don't even see at all anymore. Um, and then our, our, our we have a, a little river system that's probably more like a creek in a lot of places. But uh, traditionally used to when when the when the river would get when everything would get froze up within well, the river would have the only open water around. And we would set up on sandbars on the river and granted it's high sides and, and everything. And, and, uh, back in those days from a decoy standpoint, there wasn't a lot of decoy offerings, you know, and, and real foot was notorious to using the tires. You would take an old black tire and cut it in half, paint the white patches, you know, the tail patches on each side. Um, and you'd put out, you know, a couple thousand of those and just the black spot. And then the old, four by eight sheets of plywood and you would cut the silhouettes, you know, and I remember my oldest brother, they used to do a lot of tires and, and the, the wood silhouettes back, you know, this is back in the eighties, you know, and that I was just getting started of going with him and my dad and my granddad. But uh, that's kind of where my roots were. Uh, but it's still safe to say as things evolved from there, uh, duck hunting was primarily king. I mean, most part, you know, duck hunting is, is what you, what you, what you did. Now, granted, if you had a flock of geese coming and ducks, you would always choose the geese because it was still a little rare. Uh, but for the most part, and even still today, duck hunting is king. And then when I started getting into uh, goose calling, the reason I did is because I was uh, really good friends with a couple guys in the, in the industry with Trent Alban, which is one of the guys that really got me started. He was calling at the time with Knight and Hale. Um, John Pisoni in Southern Illinois, and then of course Tim Grounds, um, and meeting them, and 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 I've always was infatuated with goose hunting uh, when I was a kid, and that's just kind of where things grew and and developed in, and that's how I got into started in contest calling in the fall of '97. So, in today's Kelly Powers' life, you are going to do most of your Canada goose hunting in September or maybe October in Canada. But once that 60 day duck season starts where you're from, it's, it's, uh, hell's got to freeze over it's before you, heads. it's not, it's not go, you're not going goose hunting anymore, right? You're going, you're going mallard hunting. No, unfortunately, you know, occasionally we will get 
if you get a hard freeze, you will get, you know, and, and, and we've got to have, we have to have the weather. Um, but, but occasionally we will get, uh, you know, some, some good, decent numbers of geese down huntable, but th- that's a big miscon, you know, a lot of guys don't understand, but real foot Lake, even, even Wheeler Lake, Alabama, if you look in North Alabama, you know, and look historically in the seventies and eighties, how many Canada geese they held, it was substantial, you know, and, and it, it's, it's a sad stub- subject and it goes off, you know, a whole nother topic, but, uh, and we can, we can address that another day, but but there was good goose hunting in this area, especially way further south than us. Um, and it was just, I, I remember when I was a kid with my granddad, and I, like I said, I'm five or six years old riding around uh, just farm ground. And I mean, seeing 20, 30, 50,000 Canadas in one field, it was just crazy the number of geese. And a lot of that's just right below my house. Uh, and all these geese would roost on our river and sandbars and and that was a, a yearly thing. And And now I drive by the same fields with my kids and I look at that literally the same field and the same red barn and the same grain bins that the geese were all the way up to. And it's, it'll never happen again. Never. And there for 20, 30 years, it was a yearly thing. You constantly saw them there. So it's, it's a very sad kind of situation, but it is what it is. It is. And it's, you think about it, it's still happening today. I mean, where ducks were five years ago, you know, they were even transitioning today into different parts of the flyways. Um, a lot of, you know, farming techniques, uh, growing food for ducks, farming for ducks, refuge systems, everything plays a role, I believe. Hunter pressure, weather, We, you know, a lot of people say we haven't had a real strong winter in the last three years. You know, it's all, it's all relative. And when you talk to somebody that loves duck hunting as much as you do and goose hunting as much as you do or I do or like Dave Stanley or John David, it is what it is and you just have to keep rolling and adapting. And I think that, I think that a lot of time is spent, you know, wondering like where'd they all go when, when the time needs to be spent is like, hey, where are we going to find them now? You know, like you can't sit idle I don't believe anymore you have to be able to adapt and like you say like where you where you're hunting right now it it was always rich in duck hunting and that's what you concentrate your efforts on but when you are doing your job with hosting the tv show for Higdon when you are testing product for the Higdon decoy line or Mo Marsh or or going out for final flight on a media hunt or whatever you you're chasing Canada geese in locations where Canada geese are whether it's in Ontario or Saskatchewan or Alberta or North you know somewhere where you're going to find a good heavy population of Canada geese. So you, as a hunter, hopefully you have the ability to do that. Even if it's once or twice a season today, even today's duck hunter has to think about where are, what are the migratory routes doing? What is farming doing? What is the hunting pressure doing? There's a lot of aspects that go in to having a successful duck or goose season. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And man, it's, I've always said it for, for years, you know, being in the south it's you know from paducah illinois from paducah kentucky's further south um people aren't as necessarily as concerned until it starts happening with their ducks when they don't see the mallard ducks here anymore and you're seeing that now and 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 point to the canada goose migration and and i'm telling you man you know the times i'm in marion illinois and ground crab orchard and some of those areas it's sad. It's, I mean, it's just a sad to look back and realize what it used to be. And granted for me, I, I only start, I started going up there in the, in the nineties. And that was, that was past from where, where it was, you know, we were in the going downhill bad then. Um, so I didn't see it in Southern Illinois in the glory days, but, but it's, it's just a sad situation. And there's a lot of, you know, no-till farming. Um, and, and there's three different points that I can kind of name on no-till farming. Um, coolant lakes you know warm water discharge lakes um and and then uh, the reintroduction of the giant canada goose uh I, I think those three factors alone and we can go on that you know another time but those three factors alone in my opinion have redefined our canada goose migration more than any other thing um i need you to hit on that last one just for a second if you would all right. So, because well, I know Neil, I know no till farming, and we can go into that later on. I know about warm water and, and, and coolant lakes. I understand that, but I have not heard a theory based on the reintroduction of the of the greater Canada goose. Back in the back in the late nineties, a good friend of mine that helped the DNR in Michigan um, banned and relocate programs and stuff, and and 
He had a great question to me, and he nailed it, and this was in the 90s. He said, Kelly, what's a migratory Canada goose now? He said, define that. Well, you can get into the, the physical, physiological aspects of the goose, and uh, the, we can analyze the DNA. We can analyze you know, the, the subspecies and get exactly – we can define it that way. But his point is this. When you have a million – and I'm just going to throw some numbers out there that I'm just pulling out of thin air. Let's just say when you have a, a half a million resident Canada geese in Chicago, Illinois, when Johnny Migrator comes in from James Bay – and, and, and flying down, he's not going to fly over half a million of his buddies that look like him, that talk like him, that act like him, that feed in the same fields as him. He's not going to keep going to a destination further south that he's never been to. So he intermingles with them. So, so much intermingling is going on with resident Canada's that are genetically designed not to migrate and migratory Canada geese that are migrating. So, so much intermingling is going on. And then what happens is there is a note, the farmers, no-till farming, they're not in the fall where they harvest their corn. They're not disking up uh, their cornfield. They're leaving that stubble standing. So any excess grain is still left on the field. So if you don't get, if you don't get a heavy snowfall from the, uh, if you don't get a heavy snowfall on the field, well, then you've got open grain for that goose to feed in. Then when they leave that field to go back to water, you have a warm water discharge plant for them to, to rest in and to roost in at night. And then they've got half a million of their buddies that they're there with that accompany them. So what, what we've seen is it's almost a sense the strong survive. You know, the, these geese are enduring harder winters because when they look over at their buddies and their buddies aren't leaving, well, then they stay. So we're, we're breeding a tougher species. So then when it comes time to migrate back north, some of them will migrate back north um, and, and so on. So it, there's so much intermingling going on, and that's where I hit those three, those three factors, no-till farming, uh, the, the power plant, warm water discharge, cooling lakes, and, and the, the reintroduction of the giant, the explosion of the giant Canada goose in these northern areas. Um, and how many times you see it, Chicago used to never be a – hotbed for Canada geese like it is now and and goodness the first of September comes and and they're starting to get some some migrators coming in even in the first second week of September and they never leave when it gets cold all those geese will go to Braidwood which is about an hour south of Chicago which is a huge warm water discharge lake they will congregate at Braidwood as long as they can and if it gets really cold and a lot of snow, well, then they will leave that area and then they'll kind of hit Springfield, Illinois, and just some of those little places. But for the most part, they won't leave. And you have resident Canada geese mixed in with giant Canada geese. And, and it's, just a, it's just a bad disaster for people that are further south. And I'll, and I'll say that to say this. What if, and I'm not for this, but if you snapped your fingers and you said, all right, all warm water discharge lakes the water that they discharge has to be at the same temperature that they intake it. So if they're bringing in water at 33 degrees, well, then it's got to be discharged at 33. If that was the case and Mother Nature would freeze bodies of water when it's below freezing like normal, the goose hunting dynamic would be completely different. And, and back at one, one point, back in the early 2000s, Michigan, which we get a, in Tennessee, we get a lot of our Canada geese from the southern Michigan area and all that. Well, back in the early 2000s, man, there was a huge, I mean, they probably got 12, 14 inches of snow in Michigan. Well, the next day we were watching the weather and I thought first day on that post front as it comes through, skies clear off, you get them big clear skies, powder puff clouds as grounds always used to call it. I said, we're going to see some flight geese. Sure enough, we did. We had, we had some and, and we killed a band that one day and I called my buddy and I said, hey, uh, where is this, um, where was this, can you give me a band, where was this bird banded? And he was like, wait a minute. He said, that's a transplant bird. He pulled the number up. He said, that was a bird that was banded in Detroit City Park, was transplanted to the UP in Michigan, Upper Peninsula, and it was too young to fly when they banded it. So technically, this bird was labeled as a resident Canada goose, which is what it was. It got so much snow on the ground that he intermingled with migratory Canada geese. It survival instinct kicked in to where they had to leave a lot of their bodies of water were freezing the snow there was too much snow on the ground to dig down to find a food source so that resident canada goose left with 
the migratory Canada goose, it ended up in Tennessee and was shot by a hunter. And this is in the early 2000s. So we were kind of seeing as like, this is, there's so much intermingling now. And it goes back to the question that my buddy asked, define a true migratory Canada goose now, because it's a lot different definition than what it was 20 years ago. And a lot of that has to do with those factors that I mentioned. It's a great, that's point. my theory. No, it's, it's, it's makes a lot of sense. And it makes you wonder with the mallard duck, um, you know, cause now you made mention before you started that your Canada goose synopsis was it's starting to happen with the Southern duck hunting hunter getting panicked and developing anxiety pretty much of where are the greenheads? Where are the mallard ducks and mallard ducks don't, build up in areas if you go to wichita kansas and all the farmland that used to be is a lot of subdivisions now well what happens in those subdivisions they put a fountain in there that runs water all year round that has open water in a pond that the kids can go down to the grass around it gets just riddled with goose droppings and the amount of canada geese in these subdivisions blows your mind well once they eat out that grass and the temperatures get to a point to where they have to go on the outskirts of wichita and eat the corn or the other grains and crops that are being grown by the farming community in that area of Kansas, now that's when the hunting can get good. But the other part of it is that that's why the hunting stays good in those parts of the country and that geese really don't move further on than that because of those subdivision ponds are. And that's what's going on in Chicago and Peoria, Illinois and and all over that and all over, even in like, even in areas like Fargo, North Dakota and, and different parts of North Dakota, where you get a lot of growth and development and these, and these ponds are staying open because of these fountains. And now these Canada geese are never leaving areas that, so now your, your point is well taken because the intermingling occurs and the and the natural the natural instinct of a Canada goose of so the survival mode is kind of taken away from them uh, and, and that Absolutely. can be that can be said for a lot of things even like refuges when they're going in behind closed doors all the time and eating a feast that's farmed a lot of these refuges are farmed the same way that hunting ground is and these yep. ducks are getting conditioned of like man we don't get shot in these so there's there's a lot of talk about that but that's a great point about the intermingling and and why Canada goose why Canada geese have never really left. And I, I wonder what's going to happen to places like the front range of Colorado. Um, you know, are, is that going to, is, is the places North of there going to, you know, hold the birds up longer and longer, preventing them from getting down there on that part. Cause historically the last 20 years, that's been a hotbed for Canada geese too. Yeah. The, and there's, I mean, there's not a lot we can do about it. You know, I, I will say the only, the only thing we could do is, is obviously involves regulation and I'm, I'm against, you know, but, but at the end of the day, you know, Wade Walling's a good buddy of mine that lives in Chicago, you know, and, and Wade won the world goose and, and, and the whole deal. And, you know, I talked to Wade and, and he's fishing in February for bass, you know, and flipping and, and goodness, my lakes down here froze up and he's eight hours North of me and he's flipping brush and cover. Like, how are you? Well, I'm on a warm water discharge lake. It's just different, you know, and it, and we even had these discussions and I'm thinking, I'll never get my ducks and geese like I used to when there are, I mean, thousands of acres of reservoirs that are warm water discharge that will never, ever freeze. And listen, if a duck or goose has fields to feed in and warm and warm water to roost in, they're not going to leave. And that's just a fact. I mean, now if that water freezes, just like it is in Canada, when there's no, no industry and you're in the vast open area in Saskatchewan or Manitoba, wherever you go, when that water starts freezing, they're bugging out. And when you start to get a little bit of snow on the ground, they're gone. But for the most part, when their water freezes where they can't sleep a place at night, you know, they'll try to keep it open. But once it starts to freeze, they're gone. Well, when they get down into the States, they don't, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen like it does in Canada. And I think it's one of the biggest, biggest things. And I, I tell guys, I say, hey, listen, get on Google Earth, sit, find you a river, just zoom in as far as that river and just keep working your way upstream on that river. When you see the little squiggly like little creek going in, if you start seeing smokestacks, just zoom in, you'll see some smokestacks and then you'll see a discharge. Like that's what those are. They're warm water discharge plants, you know, that they're, they're bringing, bringing water in to help cool their generators, help cool their machinery. And I get that, all that. Uh, and then again, I'm not, I'm not necessarily for additional regulations. I'm just stating a fact. I, I think this no, makes dramatically affects our, our migratory birds, you know, and, and I, I, don't, I don't even know the solution. But I think it's I think you could definitely put your finger on that way more than any type of 
farming practice, any type of other thing. Uh, in my opinion, that's one of the biggest contributing factors. And when you when you start mixing in the 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 part that we have controlled um, in the, let's say the past 25 years, and, and I'm going to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole for one minute here, and then you tell me if I'm wrong or if yeah. you agree at all. Um, back when you were growing up, I'm a little bit older than you. I'm 45. How old are you, Kelly? I'm 40. I'll be 42 this summer. Okay. So we're, we're close to the same age. When we were coming up, I don't think that there was a huge influx of American hunters going in to Saskatchewan, Alberta, Ontario, Manitoba no. areas to hunt, to, to target waterfowl. There might've been a, a quite a few whitetail hunters, but I think that, 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 that part of the Canadian tourism or the Canadian, you know, explosion, if you will, happened later than that. And I'm going to say probably somewhere in the later nineties to the early two thousands, it hasn't been going on that long. Is that fair to say? I agree. I completely okay. agree. So if you mix that and you're and you're and I want your thoughts on this powers on the explosion of dry field hunting in the lower 48, uh, the cornfield hunting, the the how many hunters are actually targeting and focusing their efforts for most of their year now to where ducks and geese, mainly ducks, historically have been hunted over water. That's why it's called waterfowl hunting. That's why they're called waterfowl species. Now you have this huge explosion of not only are they getting hammered in the pea fields over spinning wing decoys, which I'm not even going down that rabbit hole because I, that's a part of, of hunting that I have a completely different view about than a lot of duck hunters. Um, but you have a lot of dry field. Now they're getting hunted in their homes on the water. They're day loafs in the middle of the afternoon where they sleep on both bodies of water. And then when they're going out to eat, they're getting hunted. So now you take that into effect when the snow comes and covers up that food. Now they do have a chance to migrate. If they do, they're already getting more and more educated than they've ever been because of all of the vast ways to hunt them. Is this fair to say? Absolutely. I just, it's funny. I was looking at a study just, uh, this is probably just a couple of days ago. Um, the state of Tennessee, a lot of different, a lot of different research entities are doing this, but where they're radio marking birds. Uh, but one of the things just here locally uh, that that our our University of Tennessee did is they radio marked a couple, you know, a few mallards, and they're tracking their movements. The astonishing thing is there were a couple ducks that never left the refuge, like they never left. I mean, for like one time, one one duck was there in the same spot for like thirty days. And, 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 and I look back at the weather pattern during those 30 days and it wasn't a, it wasn't a constant, you know, it wasn't like it was 50 degrees every day and no wind, like you would expect them not to fly, but there were different changes. There were code fronts and different things and, and weather systems that come through and a huge rain system that come through where you would think ducks would get up off the refuge, follow that rainwater where it left in sheet water and fields and find different alternative food sources and go back to the refuge at night. You would think that happened. No, they just never left. Like they were on that refuge, never left. And these are refuges that aren't just, they're not bait. I mean, they're not pouring, you know, yeah, some, some of them have food sources and this and that, but most of them is moist soil management, stuff like that. You know, it's not just a, it's not like they went and planted a bunch of corn and flooded it. That's not the case. So it's, it's really, it was, it was alarming of how, and, and the only thing I can contribute to do is pressure. Um, everywhere else they go, either they get shot, called at, harassed, and they have just come accustomed to, I'm going to survive if I stay here. And, and it's just an interesting take. It, it, yeah, it's, you, and then you mix on top of that, the theory of the flooded corn places of where, you know, you have harvesting going on over flooded corn that's being kept in, kept open through aerators yep. and, and, and ice eaters. You mix that on top of it now to where now when they are on their resting area, it's a buffet of flooded corn, which they love. That's it. And th yep. cause they, cause they can sleep there and eat there. But then the guy where they're being killed over a lot of the times is, 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 is either transition areas from flooded corn to a refuge or uh, a resting area. But I think that the influx in the, in, in farming for ducks, even though the theory could be, well, these farmers and these duck hunters are managing their land in a way that gives nutritional value to the ducks down and back up the flyways on their migratory routes when they're going back up to breed even because a lot of these these land will just you know knock down all the corn and then when duck season's over the returning ducks up north well what's that doing that's really imprinting them again right of like man we love it here yeah. we got it we got to mark this on our gps yeah. right so it, it, i think it's a very interesting topic of 
where are the ducks who you I've never seen more frustrated people in the South than I have in the last 24 months of, of even down in yeah. Louisiana, Louisianans are just are madder than a, you know, a hornet. So it's, it's something that I'm not on the, on the level of you are. And I don't even know if you're on the level of a lot of the biologists of what's going on or where are our ducks. But I do think that that theory of co-mingling with the Canada geese has affected the migration for sure. If you look at it that Absolutely. way, but I think the same thing's going on hey. with ducks because I think that they're finding these spots where all these ducks are congregating and they don't really need to leave. And then you mix in the pressure and they're like, why would we leave? Yep. And, and, uh, you know, and even South of us, I know there's a push on, you know, and, and, and I'll ruffle some feathers when I say this, I'm sure. And, but this is, again, it's my opinion, you know, flooded crops, and ice eaters and ice splashers and whatever you want to do. But, you know, we, I mean, we farm, you know, we'll leave standing corn and I can tell you from firsthand experience, we'll hold ducks. But when that water starts freezing, there is no way to keep it open. Yes. I can run as many ice splashers and ice eaters, whatever's I want to run with electricity, but I can only hold so many ducks and, and there's, it's impossible to keep a 50 acre completely open. What are you going to have, 50 ice eaters? I mean, it's not like, do the math. It, you know, people say, oh, yeah, but they're running, you know, aeration and this and that and keeping it open. You can't replicate that on a large scale unless you have millions and millions and millions of dollars. And I've, I've been to all some of the best clubs all up and down the Mississippi Flyway. Nobody, it, it just doesn't happen. They'll keep them for a little bit, but at a certain time when the weather gets that cold, that water freezes. I mean, you'll have a, a whole even just a small hole congregated. And at that point you can't hold ducks on it. You know, those ducks are getting up and going to a warm water discharge where they may have several thousands of acres of water that will never freeze. And, 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 and until people see that with their own eyes and realize, I mean, these are bodies of water. You're talking an ice blast or ice eater leaving something open, you know, a 30 yard wide area. Well, whoop de do that's not holding nothing. You know, yeah, that may make hunting better if something flies over, but you're not holding birds if it gets down that code. Where if you go to a power plant that's a 500-acre reservoir that the water temperature is 45 degrees, you know, steam coming off of it, but the air temperature is 10, like, it, it doesn't, you know what I'm saying, it doesn't, like, that's where, that's the bigger problem than, than any of that on the small scale. And I think that's, I think we're we're taking our focus the wrong direction. You know, I mean, yeah, you can do that, but you're ignoring a big shining light right here of where the bigger problem is. And the only way to figure that out is if you just travel. When you travel and you see it, you know, any hotbed area, well, where your ducks go when it's cold, especially when you go up the state of Illinois, oh, when it gets cold, they go down there to so-and-so power land. Oh, there's a cooling light right here. I mean, it's the same answer every single time, you know, and you keep following up in the in the in Midwestern states and it's the same area. If, if they don't have a cooling lake, they go to the river. When the river freezes, you know, if there's no cooling lake there, well, then they'll migrate further south. But it, it's all about where are they staying at night? What water source do they have that's going to constantly be open? And it's not because of so-and-so hunter has, you know, ice it, whatever. I mean, they can do that for a couple days, but then their open water is just shrinking and shrinking and shrinking because it's physically not possible to do that on a large scale to keep something that open to hide, you know, a hundred thousand ducks or 200. I mean, you just can't do it. So it is an unfair, uh, uh, it's an unfair passing of judgment to say that, you know, when a Southerner says something like, well, they're just, they're growing too much corn and haven't, they're flooding too much corn North of us. Your point is, is that that's not the big problem in, in, in where the duck is going. No. That's first what you're off, saying. Flooding corn. Yeah. First off flooding corn yeah, there's an added benefit, but when that water freezes, well, then it's it's no different. The bigger problem on, on crop management is a uh, ethanol gas, which gets into increased corn production in the Midwestern states. I mean, those two correlations with the corn production is increased. You know, well, then then when South Dakota and North Dakota are inc- are taking CRP fields and converting them back to grain fields. And, and having more corn production and nothing wrong with that. Any, you know, anybody, you could see that happening, but a, a mallard duck, it, it, a lot of times you're Southern hunters. And I was one of them back in the nineties, you know, we, you would never see ducks dry feeding. Like what in the world, what is that duck doing landing out in the dry field? But what, what Southern hunters don't really realize is guys, this is how ducks eat and survive up North they would just soon go feed in a dry cornfield as they would in your flooded cornfield. 
you know, and, and now when you add the water on it, well, that's an added benefit. Don't get me wrong. But up north, they're dry feeding. So now when you have an increase of corn production and it doesn't have a good bit of snowfall to cover up that excess grain and they're no-till farming, meaning they're not disking up that field in the fall, they're leaving that grain exposed. So if they don't get much snowfall to cover up that grain, it's an open buffet for them and more of it. And when they leave that field, if they have a cooling lake to go back to to get a drink of water that will never freeze, there's a problem. It's way more of a problem than it is of so-and-so clubs or so-and-so hunters like to me it's 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 a such larger scale that we don't even need to pay attention to the other part i would agree 100 percent because i get to travel like you do and i've seen hundreds of thousands of mallard ducks in mid-december to christmas in north dakota in places where you know i would never say it on here i would tell you as a friend but you probably already know where they're at they're not they're not on the you know they're off the beaten path but but my point is is that you're looking at temperatures that are are below freezing every night sometimes below zero um open water with coolant ponds with power plants with mills with um factories and with open rivers that the ducks don't leave. It's if, if, if they can get into that dry cornfield, if, if mother nature says we're not going to have a good snowfall until new year's and there's not a big snowfall in North Dakota or Eastern Mon- or Eastern Montana along the Yellowstone river into Western North Dakota and all that area. I've seen ducks up in that country all the way into new year's. I've seen ducks in, in, videos I get sent from Canada where ducks are still up there in open areas where people are like, there's no way there's ducks yep. left in Canada. Yeah, there are because they're there the, because their food's not covered up. Um, I've seen not covered up. Yeah. I've seen Alberta with, 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 you know, the grain carts on the trains that haul them around. I've seen mallard oh, ducks. Oh, yeah. by, have you seen that just landing all over the train I tracks have. and stuff? It's crazy. crazy. They're, they're so resilient. It, They'll it, stay. And, and that's the thing, you know, from, and, and, and I'm labeling myself in this group as a Southern duck hunter. And that's, and that's me born and proud, but it's hard to believe on how we were brought up duck hunting, duck hunting. You grab a dozen decoys, you walk out in the timber, you kick water and you kill ducks. That's how you hunt. When you see a duck land in a dry field, it's what in the world just happened. You know, that is a hard concept, but believe me, I mean, granted, I mean, we've been doing going to further north. I mean, that's just, that's reality. Like it's it, so, but it was a hard thing for me to understand. It was like back in the nineties, like, why are they, how in the world, you know, people are killing these things in, in these dry fields. Like to me, it was, it reeked of desperation. Like, cause you would never like down here, even today, like you would hardly ever set up on a dry field in this area because there's so much water, you know, and it very rarely do you see ducks feed in a dry field, you know, South of, of, I mean, goodness, the Kentucky line, or, I mean, you just, it's a rare occasion, but, but when you go further north, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just reality, you know, and, and a lot of that, I think it's because of lack of, of, of lack of food source in water, in, in areas with water, where down south, it's just, you know, it's just a little more, but man, when you add everything together and all those factors, to me, that's where our, the biggest problem is, and, and like I say, cooling lakes is, is, I, I mean, say, call it for what it is, but it's a, it's a big problem in my opinion. It's, it's one of the biggest things I think that that's affected us. I, th- yeah, something happens in a duck's mind or, um, you know, it, it, it's just probably the readily or the availability of the crop. Because if you take, let's take the state of Missouri, for example, if you go to Kansas city, you're going to find a lot of mallards dry feeding. But if you go to St. Louis and South on the I-55 corridor towards Memphis and you get into the boot hill and the real foot air, real foot Lake area of Tennessee, it's the same state it's missouri and you you will you will very rarely find a duck that will hit and there i've seen some cornfields in sykeston around you know around those yeah. different parts of the boot hill i've never seen a duck go in there i've seen canada geese go in there and i've seen snow geese go in there but i've never seen a mallard duck dry feed maybe south i personally i've never seen a duck a mallard duck dry feed south of the mason dixon line in the south now you can't that doesn't count oklahoma or texas or any of that okay That's right. i'm talking about the south yep i've never seen a duck completely dry feed agree. down there i've never seen it completely agree and, and there's just so much water there's so, so much, much water. water there's so many developed clubs um and and let's just let's micromanage a little further take a year like this year and the year before when the mississippi river and the ohio river system are as high as they are and the mississippi this is going back now on two years that we're still at record heights i mean there are crops up and down the mississippi that never even got to be this might be the second year in a row that farmers won't be able to even put a crop in 
because the river's that high. When you have that much water, it's not measured in acres, it's measured in square miles. And 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 I think our good buddy, you know, um, with with across the river with Keith Allen and Christian and those guys, you know, they're just they're not goodness, probably 40 miles from where I am and where I hunt. But you could at one time you could put a boat in in Missouri, and, it, I, and I figured it was like 30 something miles before you, if you would do a straight line going straight east before you would get back to ground again. And that's just hard to fathom for people on how big of a river, river system Mississippi is and the Ohio is. So when you have that much water out now for two duck seasons in a row, man, it, it's hard for these ducks to congregate. Yeah, are, we have we have spots. I hunt a spot on the river. I hunt a spot that we have on some of our farm grounds, and and then we even in Missouri on some rice fields and and you see the good and bad of all places and when the river gets that high a lot of these other areas they suffer you know they just they're not going to have that good of a duck season because there's so much water that what ducks you do have are scattered out that that vast um and and, and even even for everybody everybody suffers you know and and I've said this for years as a southern hunter your duck season can be contributed on the full moon cycle in the months of October and November. And, and, and you know, this, you know, and this guy goes back to the old Tim Grounds days and hunting with him and learning by, you know, just decades and decades and generations of hunters, but majority of waterfowl migrate during the full moon. If the weather conditions are ideal. So I tell guys find the full moon in the month of really the month of September, October, November, those three months, Go to your calendar, circle when that full moon is, okay? Go four days before the full moon, four days after the full moon. Block off those eight, nine days right there. Just make a line through that. When it gets up close to that point, watch the weather from your location all the way up the flyway further north. If you have a post-frontal conditions, clear skies with a, with a favorable northwest wind, birds are going to migrate at a at a more percentage than they would be if it was cloudy still that kind of scenario so if we have ideal conditions in those eight seven eight days each month if we can get those ducks and geese out of canada early if we can get them out of those areas early in those staging points our duck season in december and january are going to be better the problem is those full moon cycles in september october november if the weather's not favorable and if it's warm, south winds, cloud cover from pretty much from your location up the flyway, then if those if we start December and southern Saskatchewan still has good numbers of ducks, our hunting in January is probably not going to be as good like we want it to unless it's just an absolute extreme weather event. But if we can have the good cold fronts in the month of October and November to get our ducks into northern Missouri, you know, and, and just really in the last two years, man, we had good weather conditions in October and the first part of November that ducks got staged perfect areas in Northern Missouri. And then when our December hit, it was, our December was warmer than January, warm South winds, warm days. I mean, 65, 70 degrees sun, you know, and what ducks we were going to get, it, it was just, it was a disaster of a condition where we can, if our weather continued on, we were just right on the, right on the cusp of having great numbers you know, a waterfowl. Once we get them in this, in what I call our box from, from, from central Mississippi up to Southern Illinois, those areas for the most part, aren't going to have a hard freeze to where it locks you up for the season. So once we get them within that box, they're going to bounce back and forth. That's what for I was just going to ask you that. And, and a lot of people that, that don't, a lot of people that aren't as well versed on you or, uh, as you in this area, they don't understand that once the duck goes South, he or she can still go back North. They'll bounce. Absolutely. So, so like, once the Delta absolutely. Mississippi gets them, that doesn't mean that Kelly's not going to see those same exact ducks in Tennessee again. Yep. Yep. I want a hard freeze early. I want them to go off past us because once you start getting warm weather and strong south winds, and especially if you get a rain system that comes out of the south, southwest, they'll follow that water up. And then three or four days later, get another cold front. It pushes them back out. If we can have those variances, it's great. But where our problem is, if we never get them in our box, you know, right now they're doing that, but the northern Missouri is on the northern point of that box. And that's where the problem is. You know, used to, Paducah, Kentucky, Southern Illinois was kind of the northernmost area, I felt like, if you were to draw a line all the way down to northern Missouri, West Monroe, Louisiana, northern Louisiana, 
back into central Arkansas, that was kind of the wintering box for, and I'm talking mallards. Now that box has shifted further north. You know, now you're looking at the at the northern part of Arkansas as as the southern tip, and the northern part of Tennessee as the southern tip. You know, yes, they'll go further south than that, but it, it's it's just that our our wintering area has shifted. And you know, the and the and the west two hundred miles north and the western boundary yeah. kind of might have shifted a little bit more west too, don't you think? I agree, and a lot of that is you know, I mean, Mississippi and Central Flyway really intermingle together. Yeah. You know, so with with the increase of corn production in North Dakota, South Dakota, you know, those ducks have a decision to make. Do we follow the Missouri River down into the Mississippi or just we just keep on following the corn down yeah. in Nebraska and Kansas and Oklahoma? And, and yep. I think that's kind of where in Oklahoma. See, and that's a great there, right? that's such a great, easy way to think about it of the river systems of that area of where the Missouri River is up in North Dakota and how it kind of starts coming from north to south and then starts veering to the east. And then if you follow that all the way down in the Mississippi, that's where you would relatively in your brain would go. That's where the ducks are going to go. The ducks that start on that part of the river and that part of North Dakota or, you know, that part of southern canada they're going to end up down here because they're going to follow that river but then as these farmers start to say whoa let me tempt you with this we it's like us man we go to this same place for lunch every day but now all of a sudden somebody builds something right here that saves us on fuel money and time we might be a little bit more tempted to go there oh we're just going to keep following the corn so now you get the platte river system you know adding up and then the arkansas river area loading up of art of nebraska kansas down into oklahoma and that it's just a but here's what's cool about it and we're going to end it like this because we have about seven minutes left. I'm not going to keep you. I ha- I have another one coming up, but I do want to. I do want to. First off, I love talking with you. I want to schedule part three when you have time because yeah. I know you're saying. But here's the thing, is that it, you made comment in our last our last podcast about you know your competitiveness and your tennis career and that. But you are so nonchalant when you see Kelly Powers. You've already said in a crowd you're kind of quiet. You're more reclusive to where a guy like Kyle and, and your and your other guys are going to be the guys that are going to run a crowd or own a crowd and talk and build brands that way you feel you stay in your lane and you own that lane you do you're very nonchalant even sitting in that chair right there kelly powers just he's just kelly right well you kick everybody's ass in goose calling you've won some some heavy meat duck contests that i competed you in, against are you this relentless the way that you just described the southern duck hunter watch the moon phases four days before four days after look at the weather up up north of you in the mississippi river flyway are you this relentless still at 42 years old, Kelly, to where you are practicing these habits during duck season to where you are just like geared and focused? Like I'm, we're going to get them in this box. And when we get them, we're going to be on them. I know you have a son and I know you're passing this lifestyle down generation to generation, but personally, do you still get so excited to get this? And where I'm going with this is that the way you just described that is so cool of like, yeah, follow them from the Missouri river in North Dakota and see what they're doing. Moon phases and weather and, and corn production and, and warming ponds and coolant ponds and all this. Do you practice this still at 42 years old? I'm not saying that you're mad at them, but do you still love it so much to where you're consistently focused like this during the duck season oh god absolutely i mean man this is i mean we all have our hobbies but man this is my life i mean it's not i mean i mean i grew up if you miss a day of duck hunting it was like a sin and that's i mean my older brothers and and they picked on me like if you slept in I mean, it was 60 days from every single day. Now, the older I got, you have responsibilities, obligations, and, you know, but still, I mean, it's every day. It, it's just, it's a way of life. Now, granted, if the hunting's, if the hunting's bad and, 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 hey, I'm going to go and, and I'm leaving early. I got work to do. I'm going to go do something else and not dwell on it. But no, I mean, goodness, I, heck, I've already, since February, we built a work on a new duck line. We welded it and all kind of additions to it. And I got a guy coming to spray insulation. Uh, just two days ago, I was fighting cotton mouse, digging ditches out for boat ditches, boat runs that goes up to the blinds. I mean, I can send you all kind of photos. I mean, it's, just, it's every day, every day it's thinking, of course, now I'm thinking turkey hunting and, and I've got like four more new turkey blinds to build for next year that I'll start here at the end of turkey season, just in areas that go, but no, it's 24 seven, every single day is, is hunting of how to be better, um, you know, and, and I, that's just me, man. That's, I'm humble about it. And I, I can't, uh, fortunate to have good friends that have, that, you know, show me my friends, I'll show you your future. And that's, I've had great friends that I felt like that, that steered me the right direction. And I try to be like, and that's just kind of where I'm at. 
I love it. Well, I'm still going to keep this invite up in the air, but it's like a it's like a reversal in the invitation process. If you do get a wild hair, I'm I'm here um, this fall. I'd love to come see it. Go on a boat ride. We yeah. do, we can leave the camera crews behind, even though it would be fun to document some of it. But I know you got Higdon TV and you're and you're doing your thing. But let's get on a hunt. I'll send you some times to schedule part three because some of the things that I want you to think about are goose calls as a whole and the advancements and evolution of goose calls and your favorites. I want to get, I want to pick the mind of, of arguably the best competition goose caller of all time on what is the standard and what is your favorite of a hunting call and a comp call. I want to talk about the shaving, the reed and the guts more process. And then I want to really get into your relationship with Tim and how the days go by. And I walk in my garage where I have this Tim ground shrine and it, and it literally like still bugs me because of you go out on your own, you start your new call company. Tim got mad at me. It kind of broke us up, but we came back together. Should I have started banded calls and came out with the wrecking ball? And I know that you probably, I'm thinking you probably asked yourself some of the same questions when you walk by a picture of you. I want to get into that because I know he means a lot more to you than we've touched on. He means so much to me and we haven't touched on that. So I'll send you some times. Kelly powers. I appreciate it, brother. Final flight outfitters, check them out for all your Turkey hunting needs. Kelly, you the man, buddy. I appreciate your time. Any closing words? No, man, I'm good. Thank you. And let's, uh, we'll schedule it again. I love it. This has been another episode of the Foul Life Podcast. Today's episode, again, was brought to brought to you by our friends at Gerber Gear, Gerber, Knife, Gerber Knives, and Mountain Ops. Check out all the partners and sponsors that support us. This is Chad Belding for another episode of the Foul Life Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. Tom, hit that button. This song's called My Foul Life by the band 2AM Logic. In my foul life. Can't be with me for this hall.